Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, One Man's Musings on the Works of Stephen King. Uh, what I'm going to be doing today, guys, I'm going to continue my list of top 10 Stephen King concepts. Uh, well, no, 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 sorry, that, that's, no, I'm just, my top 10 Stephen King lists. And uh, what I'll be doing today is I'll be uh, giving what I believe are the top 10 Stephen King adaptations. So that should be fun. Okay, uh, but before I do so, I'm going to read a couple listener emails. As you know, I love getting listener emails. And um, if you haven't done so, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Uh, the first of which comes from John, uh, who wrote a very, very in-depth, uh, thoughtful analysis of, of it. The likes of which just it blows me out of the water. And, and he writes, Hello, I've recently stumbled across the Stephen King cast, and I've been doing a lot of backtracking to catch up to the current episodes. I actually found the podcast because I had reread Lisey's story and was going down the rabbit hole of criticism about it. I have thoughts about that, but those are for another day, yes? I just finished your three-part series on It and was happy to have done so. For me, It is the most important novel in the King canon. So much so, I dedicated my entire graduate career to studying it and wrote my master's thesis on it. I was lucky to have Anthony Magist Magistrale as a guide for this crazy journey. If you haven't checked out his criticisms of Kings, you should. Tony's brilliant and really understands King like no one else. Back to the clown, though. My work on King, especially with It, revolves around queer identity and the HIV-AIDS crisis that was occurring during the writing of the novel and reached its peak during the publication. In order to not clog your email with a longer email than this already, I would love to hear your thoughts and share mine, if please you sigh, regarding the idea of queer identity in the novel. Quickly, the monster is unnameable. It, the love that dare not speak its name. This is the first novel where King presents a fully realized gay character. There is a homosocial homo pushing homosexual relationship between Stan and Eddie. Stan's suicide reflects the literary trope of self-destructive gay men, the weak epilogue where the heterosexual archetype is reasserted, and the parallels between social constructions of gay men in 1958 and 1985, 85 and 58 being mirrors. What I have found most intriguing about most criticism regarding the homophobia in the second chapter is defended by many and never really called out. This is where my analysis leaps out and where Tony has told me King will be angered. I think the homophobia of the novel is blatant and sets the tone for reading every other queer iceberg tip going forward, not merely incidental. All of this is in context of Bill's educational experience, where he posits a story is just a story because King writes in Dance Macabre, because you can't talk about horror or King without that one, that horror works in a Freudian manner to exercise social demons. The demons of the 80s, AIDS, and the homosexual that attends it. Social disease made medical disease. As I sent my email, I realized I've left one key moment out. It's a huge part of my analysis of it as a queer narrative about HIV-AIDS. The gangbang of Beverly, while troubling, I think works towards reasserting the norm, a statement I borrow from King himself. This moment of massive heterosexual sex is the novel's way of returning to the world that has been queered by the monster and the narrative to the hetero, hetero versus the homo. Just a thought. Again, I would love to talk about this in more depth. Um... It's just a minor touch of how I went about analyzing the novel from a queer perspective. Again, I would love to speak with you about all things King, especially it. Keep up the best work, John. John, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't, I can't, I don't have any thought um, really about this. I mean, the, the, the deepest dive I took um, on, on any sort of homosexuality found within it was, was the fact that you could read 
Eddie as closeted gay or closeted queer. I'm trying to use the terminology correctly now. Um, I, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know if that was intentional on King's part. I, I certainly didn't read it, um, I, I believe, as intentional. Uh, I know there's a lot of shippers out there that um, that uh, have put um, Eddie and Richie together and, and want to see them together. But I, I've, I, I have never taken the, the deep dive that, that you took. I mean, if you're dedicating your entire graduate work uh, towards this, you are so much more schooled in this area than, than I am. Um, so I'm taking your lead on this one. And I'm just saying, I, I think this is a, a fascinating um, and well put together argument on on something that I certainly did not touch upon in in my review. So please, if you want me to share more of your thoughts on air, feel free to write in at Stephen Kingcast. But this was I was very very impressed with with your thoughts on on this particular area, um, and I would like to hear more. And up next we have Bryant who writes. Man, I absolutely love the Under the Dome episode. I enjoyed that novel a lot when it came out, and I was mystified by the controversy that erupted over the ending of the novel. So spoilers alert, guys. Um, you shouldn't be listening to these episodes now that I have covered the the, the entirety of the, the chronological works of Stephen King. I just kind of now expect that anyone listening has caught up in the order of, of chronolog chronological publication. So... Um, Anything from here on out, it's just spoilers. And spoilers galore until I'm just, it's spoilers galore. So basically, uh, Bryant writes, I enjoyed that novel a lot when it came out and I was mystified by the controversy that erupted over the ending of the novel or more specifically over the revelation that the aliens are behind the dome. One of my best friends had that reaction. I asked him what he expected and he thought about it for a bit and allowed that he didn't know. He just expected something else. Me, I don't know how it could have been anything else. And that element chilled me to the bone. These are some of the most alien aliens I can recall encountering in any work of fiction, and their treatment of us is horrifying. It's worse when you consider that the aliens barely even think of us at all. We are just things to them. That, got, that has to be one of the most gloomy things in any Stephen King novel. I always got the feeling that the producers of the TV series intended to make up for that element. I'm 99.9% .9 certain that I remember them actively talking about how the ending would be nothing like the ending of the novel. They practically had their hands thrown up in the air in a warding off gesture as they said it. All I could think of is, why? The TV show had worse problems than that, of course. I can tell you as someone who grimly and determinedly sat through every shitty second of that miserable excuse for an adaptation that only got worse after you quit watching. Laughably awful. Inept, even. What a shame. I had no problem with the idea of the timeline being expanded and the plot being changed a bit. The way I saw it, this would have been a great excuse to do a terrific Battlestar Galactica-style series that entertained while it made trenchant and provocative commentary on political, social, religious, and moral issues. That could have been a great TV show. But if anyone ever intended to make that version, they were defeated by the hacks who were their co-workers. And in case you were wondering, no, the episode written by Stephen King isn't any better. I applaud you for your applause for Brian K. Vaughn, by the way. Saga is genius. He's got, and I bet you know this, but just in case, a new series called Paper Girls that's almost as good. It's four issues in, and it's been a freaking treat every issue so far. I need to read more of his stuff. I've still got a lot of his classics to look forward to. As for the political commentary on the novel, I couldn't agree more. 
And with this one, I'm sure it's possible to talk about the book fully without engaging in at least some political talk. I'm a lefty, and I recall feeling that the novel leaned maybe a bit too far in that direction. It, it didn't lean any further than I leaned, but I worried that some readers might feel alienated by it. It's scary that the things are seemingly even worse now than when the novel was published. This is one novel that, even as a fan, I kind of don't want to remain relevant. Seems like it's going to, though. Anyway, I'm glad to hear such a spirited and convincing defense of the novel from someone who's got such credibility. It's about time the reevaluation began. Bryant. So, Bryant, thank you for writing in. Both Bryant and John, thank you for writing in. And anyone else, uh, feel free to write at StephenKingCast at Yahoo.com. Now, the time has come. We have watched a number of Stephen King movies and television adaptations, and it is time to rank these movies and the, 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 the top 10 order in which they deserve to, to be cataloged as the top 10 greatest Stephen King movies of all time. Coming in at number 10 is a television movie event that I, I made fun of a lot. Um, it was, it was uh, an episode that I, I really enjoyed recording. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. It was a movie that I had a lot of fun revisiting. Um, it's a movie that I loved the first time it came around um, and, and hit ABC uh, screens our, and, and our television um, in, our, in our living rooms uh, when, it, when it first came out. Um, it was not based on any previous existing Stephen King work at that point. He did release the, the script of the movie, uh, but that's more of a kind of cash cow tie-in, I believe. But the, the, the movie itself, even though I made fun of it for its, its villain, I still think is a wonderfully effective um, story of setting and character and conflict. We have a lot of claustrophobia in there. And again, with I'm recording this the day after a big snowstorm that, that hit the, the East Coast. And like I said in my review of the uh, top 10 Stephen King short stories, if Stephen King is able to make you, if he's able to take something that we can all recognize and turn it on its head so from that point forward you can't think of that thing without thinking of Stephen King, then he has done an effective job. So whenever it snows, whenever we have a blizzard, whenever there's the idea that you know, for six hours or 12 hours or a day, if we're going to be in our homes because of the weather, because specifically of snow, I always think of Storm of the Century. So yes, in my review of the, the movie, I made fun of Andre Linoge and how he was the, uh, he was the Joseph Gordon-Levitt of Stephen King villains. He just tries too hard. You like him. You like him. But he just tries too hard. Uh, and I, I still stand by that. I think that Andre Lenoz just, he's got too many catchphrases. He makes his scary face too many times, but he's still an effective Stephen King villain. He's very, very threatening. He's very, very charismatic. He's very, very stoic. There's a, I really like that character. I really like the setting uh, of Little Tall Island. I, I believe it when they get snowed in. I, be, I, I get, I, I just, everything that they do with that movie, nine times out of ten, I buy. Um, I love it. And maybe it's because I have just a lot of, personal positive memories attached to it i don't know but i i think that it is very well done i think it's probably the best of the abc uh um television miniseries that that released stephen king um adaptations and it probably is the 
Um, well, it's the only it's the only one on this list that is a uh, a TV adaptation. All the other ones are um, well, I'm not necessarily going to say uh, theatrical, but it's the only one that appeared on on television. So I would say that it is the best of the bunch. So at number ten, it is Storm of the Century. Number nine is one that I really enjoyed revisiting for the purposes of, of the podcast review because it was a movie that I, I had only seen, I, I only remember seeing once and I've caught parts here and there as time goes on. But I remember after having read the book, I went out and I saw the movie and I didn't like the movie because some changes were made and stuff. But when I was able to revisit it um, objectively for the podcast, I found myself A, really excited to revisit it because of the, the the creative minds that that were behind it, um, so when it came out, it was coming when this movie came out. It came out at a time when the the director was a legend in the genre field. So the idea that this director was going to be adapting a Stephen King movie, I really like that idea. Um, and having just reread the 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 book upon which the movie is uh, based. Um, and I, I really fell in love with the book the second time around more so than than I had appreciated it the first time that I had read it. I could not wait to see what John Carpenter had in store for the haunted love story, Christine. Um, it's got an incredible score. It looks beautiful. Um, the the car kills are fantastic. There are some great set pieces. Like I said, the John Carpenter score is top notch. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and I'm actually gonna have a separate episode that's the the top ten Stephen King movie moments. And there's a moment in there that definitely hits the top ten for me. But Christine is such a well done movie. I really enjoy it, and I think that a lot of people, um, when talking about the the best Stephen King movies, really Really need to turn their attention to what John Carpenter was able to do, where he he took he took the the nugget of the the Stephen King concept and he completely like that movie it doesn't have the Stephen King sensibility it has the John Carpenter sensibility and that's why I like it um, I like that he was able to just completely make it his own and I think that more adaptations need to do that so number nine is Christine so number eight when I had been talking about the number 10 uh, top 10 Stephen King movie I said that the 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 top 10 or the the 10th was the only one that was on television and I stopped myself from saying the rest of them were theatrical releases because I don't believe that the number eight ever really made it to theaters. I believe that it was a direct to video release. Nevertheless, it's one that I think is done um, very, very well. I believe that even though it, it doesn't have a large budget, it's still very, very effective. I think that the 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 tone uh, is is very effectively done. I think that um, with Miguel Ferrar as its lead, um, it it really makes the Night Flyer uh, stand as one of the the best uh, Stephen King adaptations that that we've ever gotten. Um, I think that d d despite all of the budgetary limitations that we see on screen. The fact that it looks as good as it does and it kind of puts you on edge as much as it does. And um, I, I think that it, it's for those reasons that 
that make it as good as it is. It's a fun, fun adaptation. I was worried when I revisited it for the purposes of this podcast that uh, that it wasn't going to hold up in my in in from my memories of it because I really enjoyed watching it back in the '90s and I loved it. I loved watching it again. I was so happy that it still holds up. It's just a great late '90s uh, low budget movie, and, and sometimes that. It, nothing, it, sometimes a low-budget movie can still be a great movie. It doesn't. Nothing says that it needs to be a big Hollywood production. It was a small, independent little movie, um, and I loved it. I loved it. I thought that Miguel Ferrar was fantastic. Uh, I love the look of the Night Flyer himself. I love the music. Uh, just it's it's very very good, and it's probably the the least seen of all of the the ones on my list. As you can probably start to catalog the the Stephen King movies that I haven't talked about. You probably know which ones are coming up. Um, But I would imagine that within this list, this is the one that has been seen the least. So make sure that you check it out because you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't don't see it. Okay. um, Up next is one of the first. Probably is the first, right? The first Stephen King adaptation. As far as I know it is, um, this is the one that really helped get Stephen King over. It helped turn him into a household name. Um, it's the one that uh, that helped really start it all, guys. Uh, and with director Brian De Palma giving us some of cinema's most iconic uh, sequences, he helped do for cinema what the book itself did for literature and of course i am talking about the sissy spacek piper laurie starring carrie uh this is one of cinema's most iconic movies of all time the image of carrie white standing there drenched in the pig's blood uh that is just an image that has been solidified in in our minds the um uh dirty pillows catchphrase is has gone down um plug it up has gone down in in the animals of cinema uh uh history and it's just one of and these are the things that are just floating out there now because of how iconic this movie was and like i already said just the the split screens of of what brian de palma does it just it makes it a fun movie to watch all the while so um carrie uh in some regards doesn't hold up as well as some of the other movies on this list but nevertheless it's still incredibly effective and helped launch the career of stephen king so it needed to be in this list Number six had the distinction of being the other prison movie by uh, the director of the Shawshank Redemption. The other prison movie um, directed by um, Frank Darabont adapted from a Stephen King story. So even though it had that knock against it, it's still an incredible adaptation. A beautiful, beautiful looking movie that really captured the, the, the earnest nature of the of the the book itself and gave us life uh on death row and of course i'm talking about the green mile so number six is the tom hanks starring um adaptation of the serial adventure all that adventure but the the serial 
um, publication of The Green Mile, starring Tom Hanks. And, and it's just the fact that we finally got a Stephen King movie starring Tom Hanks, it's... I'm glad. I'm glad that when it's all said and done that we can say that we at least got one. We should have gotten more, but it's a it's a marriage of author and actor that I, I think results with the the uh, Tom Hanks just being able to elevate the the character and and taking all of the the things that Stephen King, you know, tries to accomplish um, and allowing the actor to really bring these things to life. The sympathy, the humanity, the, the the earnestness, the the faults of a man, all of this, all of this uh, is is brought to life by by Tom Hanks, um, and it's just well done. Uh, Frank Darabont continues to to show us, you know, what a what a uh, fine director he is, and he deserves all of the accolades that are ever thrown at him, and I believe that he probably needs more accolades that not enough are given to him. So the Green Mile is our number six. Our number five um, is legendary. Um, in the in the annals of Stephen King uh, moments of iconography, this one is definitely up there. And like I've been saying, um, if Stephen King is able to take an object or a concept and, and make you think twice about it, then he has done his job. And I know for sure that I will never... Uh, be able to look at a sledgehammer again without thinking of Annie Wilkes, the antagonist and number one fan of Misery. Hey, and guys, this is the this is the movie that really gave us Kathy Bates, right? I mean, yes, she's been an actress before, but I mean, this is the movie that that turned Kathy Bates into a superstar, and she is a phenomenal actress. I mean, you can't help but but love her. Um, and she would go on to later star in Dolores Claiborne, another Stephen King adaptation, which is not on this list. But um, here in in Misery, her portrayal of Annie, it's a different portrayal than how the character was written in the in the book, but that's okay. I mean, we can have we can have two different interpretations and her interpretation here um, is just as unbalanced but in a different way, but nevertheless threatening and obsessive and she is um, she's phenomenal in this role. And Rob Reiner's Misery uh, is the number five Stephen King adaptation of all time. So we're getting to uh, we're getting close. We're getting into the uh, the top ones now, guys. And at number four, a lot of you might be mad that it's not number one, but hey, sorry guys, um, it's me compiling the list. And number four is the first. Uh, Frank Darabont directed Stephen King short story about prison life and that is the Shawshank Redemption. The Shawshank Redemption might be considered one of the greatest films ever made um, but for me it is the number fourth best Stephen King adaptation ever made. I mean and at you know what, what can I say? It's well shot, it's well acted, well directed, it gives you all the feels. It's very well done um, and it's important because this particular movie went a long way in showing the world what Stephen King fans have known for years, that he isn't just the teller of spooky tales, that he's the he tells the tales of humanity. It just so happens that a lot of these stories do involve the supernatural, but he doesn't need the supernatural. He doesn't need a devil in his stories. All he needs is a conflict, and here it's it's injustice um, versus the human spirit, and the human spirit will triumph every single time. And um, in a world where <clears throat> 
where making a murderer uh, is 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 making a uh, is generating a, a lot of conversation and of course serial and unfortunately no one's really talking about uh, the Paradise Lost trilogy as much as I as I think that they should be. A lot of people are saying that when you're finished watching Making a Murderer, you should immediately watch the Jinx, and I wouldn't I wouldn't make that connection. Um, I would say that if you're done watching Making a Murderer, you should go and you should watch the the Paradise Lost trilogy, um, all about the West Memphis Three, that to me is a clearer line of, of commonality. I think that the Jinx is still something that, that should be watched, and I think that that serves as a nice um, opposite, opposite side of the coin, which we have in Making a Murderer, what the justice system does to you if you are poor and uneducated, and then in the Jinx, you have what the justice system will do if you are rich, um, white, and educated. Uh, so, but anyway, I, I don't even know where I'm going with this. Making Murder is phenomenal, phenomenal, and you should all watch it on Netflix as well as the Jinx um, and uh, West Memphis Three uh, serial. You should listen to. Um, but anyway, oh yeah, Shawshank. So with Shawshank. Um, a man in prison trying to clear his name, trying to free himself, um, just being squashed by the, by, the, uh, by the system itself, taking matters into his own hands. It is a triumphant tale. It is done so well. Um, Stephen King you know, did a great job, and I would say that Frank Darabont did a phenomenal job. And I'm so glad that we have Frank Darabont out there. I wish that he was directing more Stephen King works uh, because he's able to tap into um, a Stephen King sensibility and give us um, a vision that is both um, that is both true to Stephen King, yet it, it feels like Frank Darabont. In much in the same way that I, I had said that I wish that... Uh, more more directors were able to put their own stamp the way that that um, John Carpenter did with Christine. I think that a good compromise there um, is is Frank Darabont, who is able to marry his own sensibilities with Stephen King's sensibilities and be able to please both the fans like myself who like um, more distinct visionaries adapting Stephen King and the fans that like the the, the more clear-cut um, faithful adaptations I think that Frank Darabont is the perfect director for for um, us who 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 need to meet in the middle there okay um, so Shawshank did uh, probably did the most work in changing the appearance of who Stephen King really is and, and what Stephen King can give to the world. But there was a movie that came out before that that, that started that conversation. Um, I, I think that with the release of The Shawshank Redemption, it was the one that, that put it over the edge and, and really um, kind of closed the, the argument there and said Stephen King isn't just a horror writer. He gave us The Shawshank Redemption. And before that, um, also directed by Rob Reiner, he had given us stand by me and the reason that i put stand by me at our number three spot is because to me this is this is more in line with what stephen king works with than the shawshank redemption the the the, the prison tale is not a setting 
or or uh, a subject that King tackles often, yet childhood is. And King exploring childhood, specifically his own era of childhood, um, and, and capturing the sensations of the, the, the late 50s, early 60s, is something that he has worked in again and again and again. So I think that it's important to note that Stand By Me popularized that, um, based, of course, on his novella, The Body, and it's so well done. It is beautiful. And again, Rob Reiner, I believe, uh, you know, not only did Rob Reiner show us what Stephen King is capable of achieving here, that he isn't just the horror uh, master. Um, he can also tell small tales of humanity um, and make us fall in love with our characters, even when they're not being chased by monsters. I think Rob Reiner did a lot of, of work for himself showing the world what he can be and that he was more than just meathead in all in the family he said i have a voice i have um an eye for directing i have stories that i can tell you i can be more than what you thought i was so i think that that is a perfect moment of of these two um uh visionaries coming together and and proving the naysayers wrong and stand by me i i was hesitant when i had sat down to to rewatch it for the purposes of the the podcast um because i wasn't sure if it was going to be too too schmaltzy um or too nostalgic too mawkish but it wasn't it it really it really holds up it's it's very very good and it, it kind of set the, the the template for how to tell a period piece um you know, I mean, with with the the choice of music, uh, and and contrast this with the the horrible Hearts in Atlantis, which takes all of the tropes that um, had been created in Stand by Me, and it just it becomes all tropes, all style, no substance. Um, Stand by Me really really stands out at at how to do this type of movie um, that so many others try and do but but fail to do so. So I would say that our number three Stephen King adaptation is Stand by me okay and the number two stephen king adaptation of all time is the third entry by this particular director on this list alone um and is the uh the most recent adaptation of a stephen king story by this director and the director of course is frank darabont the adaptation is the underappreciated the mist now i don't know why the Mist doesn't get as much love as it does. Not that it doesn't get love. I think that it does get love, but I I feel as though people don't talk about it um, as much. It it no. I mean it. Uh, it's just I don't know. I mean people talk about the other a lot of the other movies on on this list, but they don't talk about The Mist as much. I believe as as they should because The Mist is so well done, um, and I I do like the 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 black and white version. Um, I believe that it, it does hide a lot of the, the, the bad CGI that, that is in the movie. I wish that we had more practical effects, um, but, you know, the CGI is, is what we got a lot of the time, um, but it is haunting, it's very effective, great setting, the mist itself looks good, and um, this, in many ways, was uh, Frank Darabont's gearing up to get ready for The Walking Dead, as you'll see a lot of Walking Dead faces in, in the mist. Um, 
and I think that he's fine honing his his sensibilities that will then go on display once he starts working on AMC's The Walking Dead. Not that he was on it for long, but but that's another story altogether. But The Mist is great. I I do enjoy The Mist. I love rewatching it for the purposes of the podcast. Um, and because I want to see it have more love, I'm going to put it as the number two Stephen King adaptation of all time, which brings us, ladies and gentlemen, to our number one. And for those of you who have been listening from the beginning, I think that you probably could imagine that this was going to be number one. Um, but you you know there's two different kinds of Stephen King fans out there. There's ones like me, and there's ones that wouldn't include this particular movie on this list at all. Um, it wouldn't crack the bottom 100, let alone the top, uh, the number one spot, because it is so different from the source material, because the, the director, they he, he, he did so many things that were so different from what Stephen King did. He omitted uh, certain plot points. He omitted certain big scenes from the book. He, he twisted the uh, character arc of the main character. But I don't care. All that I care about was when I sit down to watch this movie, am I affected by it? The answer is always yes, and I have seen this movie more times than I can count. It is an incredible incredible display of storytelling in the audiovisual form, much in the same way that Stephen King um, told the exact same story to an effective degree in the pages of a book. So I believe that both Stephen King telling the story in the book um, is just as effective in his medium as Stanley Kubrick telling the story of The Shining is in his medium. So uh, I'm not going to talk about it too much because I talked about it for almost two hours in one of the earliest reviews of the Stephen King cast. Um, but no, guys, I, I think that it is a it is a, a work of art with a capital A. It is, it is one of the greatest movies ever constructed and I think that if I were to create a list of the greatest movies ever made not necessarily my favorite movies which would be a completely different list but the greatest movies ever made it's probably it's probably in the top 10 right I mean you can probably make the argument that's in the top five but it gets under your skin in a way it just it gets in there and then it lives there and it just it, it grows within you so I think that it's more effective as a movie than it is as a book. Um, but that's that's definitely just my opinion, and it's one that many people do not agree. Uh, but I would definitely put The Shining as the greatest Stephen King adaptation of all time. Um, now, there's two things. I want to I wanna, uh, shout out two honorable mentions. Um, I would say uh, the first half of Dreamcatcher is incredible it is so well done it makes me mad that the second half falls apart as much as it does but the movie looks great it looks great it's a good looking movie has four charismatic um leads that work well together they're able to create a sense of friendship the setting is fantastic um it's really too bad that the movie falls apart because if it it followed the trajectory that it it, it started with we could have had a movie that was in the top 10. Um, and if the movie just ended after the, 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 the first half, it definitely would be in the top 10. Unfortunately, we get uh, Donnie Wahlberg Duddits, um bad CGI and a plot that just it, it just falls under the weight of itself. Um, but the, the core group of the four friends real in the in the snowy wilderness, um, is a great beginning to, unfortunately, a, a pretty poor adaptation. Uh, but we definitely have the extremes there. We do have great, we have the greatest maybe opening uh, 
or a candidate for what could have been the greatest, one of the greatest Stephen King adaptations of all time, also marked with the fact that it, it serves as a whole as one of the worst adaptations of all time. And also another honorable mention that I'm going to give is, even though it's not a movie, it's a motion comic. N is probably one of the, uh, the, the, the best recreated Stephen King um, entries of all time. Uh, it is so well done. It, 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 uh, this also gets under your skin in such an effective way. I loved it. Um, I still do, and I'll talk about it um, whenever I get a chance. So I need to kind of throw out honorable mentions to, to both N and the first half of Dreamcatcher. And that's all I have for this week, guys. I hope that you enjoyed it. And um, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. I'm sure that you'll have some thoughts on, on this particular top 10 list. So go you know go ahead and, and write down uh, those thoughts and send them my way. And may you have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here next episode where M-O-N spells Stephen Kingcast.